What's the importance of a foundation? One of the things that I like to do when I'm going on a walk is to stop when I see the start of a house or a construction being built. I look around the structure and and I try to picture, I try to imagine what it will look like when it's completed. In its beginnings, you really can't see too much, only a little bit of progress, or at least that's what I think when I first look at it. You know, maybe I'll see the clearing of the land, perhaps the outline of the design. After a few days or weeks, I start to see some bricks being laid, maybe uh, some cement being poured out, a, a foundation. But it doesn't really look like much. You know, other than maybe be able to tell the size of the structure, maybe which of the, the, the construction is the main section, which is perhaps a utility area, a garage, maybe the length, the width. Other than that, it really isn't that significant. And so as I'm passing by it, I may start to think, are they even doing anything at all? You know, maybe they ran out of money, or perhaps they just decided to give up on the project. They just left it abandoned. And then, after weeks, or in some cases, months go by, and then you come to the structure, and behold, there is height. You could see some outer walls being built. You can see areas where the windows or, or the, the doors may be as you Here inside, you can see a structure that that looks like stairs. You start to see more of the meat of the construction. After a few weeks, you start to see inside of it, oh, they're putting down plaster. They're putting down wallpaper. They, they, They have hardwood floors, perhaps carpet. It starts to look good, and you enjoy the fact that it's all coming together. You even get excited. You can kind of see them get excited just talking about it. You get excited about what's being done, and as you're getting near and near to the end of the construction, as you see some of the decorations, the, perhaps the for sale side sign that's on the front, you begin to be impressed by the effort, the work that got put, was put into it. You start to just look and you remember that picture, that image that you had in the beginning, and some of the gaps that were in that picture start to get filled by the real thing. We are in the the first few weeks of our sermon series in the book of Ezra, entitled Return from Exile. It's an account of the people of Israel's return back to the land of promise. After spending years in captivity by God's hand, they are released to go back and return to that land. But but more than just a return home, by God's grace, they are able to return back to the regular worship of the one true God. By his enduring and faithful hand of love, they are able to go back to where they were built up in Christ or in God's grace. 
As we move to today's passage, Ezra chapter 3, we have a reminder of the purpose of a foundation. Yes, a foundation doesn't look like much, but it doesn't tell you the full significance of what's going on behind the scenes. And in fact, you don't really see the importance of that foundation until you look a little deeper, especially one that is built on God's word. If you have a Bible nearby, I invite you to turn to Ezra chapter 3. If perhaps you don't have a Bible nearby, don't worry. We are going to project the verses of that chapter on the screen behind me. I'll, I'll move aside so you can see. And that includes those who are viewing with us online. I'll be reading the entirety of the chapter. Ezra chapter 3, starting with verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jezadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shechtel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God to Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, and the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites, from 20 years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel with his, and his sons, and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen of the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
But many, the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of a joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. To digest this passage, I'm going to break it up into three points. The first, the altar of God's worship rebuilt, which will focus on verses one through five. Uh, the second, the temple of God's worship refound, which will focus on verses six through nine. And the third, the worship of God's love renewed, which will focus on verses 10 through 13. Again, the altar of God's worship rebuilt, the temple of God's worship refound, and then the worship of God's love renewed. First, the altar of God's worship. Chapter 3, it starts off with, well, a date. Specifically, it says that on the seventh month, the people of Israel returned to Jerusalem. Now, before we, we overlook this verse, it's important to just take a moment just to, to look at and discuss a couple of points that are brought up within just this one verse. Uh, the seventh month in Israel's calendar was one for the remembrance of their exodus from Egypt when they were in captivity. It was not by their own hand that they escaped. It was not by their faithfulness that they were able to, to be released from captivity, for, for they were, were unfaithful. It was by God's hand, God's faithfulness, that they were brought out of enslavement and led into the land of promise. The seventh month would have been a, a time for them to reflect on what God had done and how they came to be. It would have been a time for them to repent of their sins and to return to the worship of the one true God. Leviticus chapter 23, it speaks of this. Leviticus chapter 23, starting with verse 25, it reads, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now, on the tenth day of the seventh month, it is a day of atonement. It shall be a time for you, a time to, to, to meet, to gather, a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. And so we see the people, after they had returned from exiles, they, they, they are seeking to start back, to, to restart the, the regular rituals of worship that they, they had practiced before, that their, their forefathers had practiced before. They, they, they go to go and start these, these patterns of worship that God had commanded Moses to teach the people. 
And you notice they didn't just return perhaps here and there over time. No, for those exiles that had come back into the land, they all came back to Jerusalem as one man. By one man, it means that they were all in agreement that this was the right thing to do. Now, this may be somewhat unexpected, that they would just all come together with, when there had only been a, maybe a few months since they had been released and were able to return to their homeland. Now, after all, they, they hadn't taken care of all the necessities of life. They, they didn't have time to conduct business properly, to establish houses, to, to, to maybe set up security, all the things that usually get in the way of worshiping God. They didn't have time to do all that stuff, and yet they all came together knowing that this was more important. In some ways, they chose to put God first before all of that. And so as the seventh month came, they realized the need by God's move in their hearts. They realized the need to come back to what they were, 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 were created, they were built to do, which is worship God. For it was not trusting in God that led to Israel's sin. It was not obeying the commands of God that led to the nation's downfall. And so the people, they come together to start to do things by the book or according to what God commanded them. But before they could do all that, there was a need to build back what was lost. When the Babylonians captured the people of Israel, they also shattered the structures of worship. The altar, the temple, they had broken it down, burnt it, destroyed it. And so as they were preparing to worship the Lord as their forefathers once did, the leaders of the people arose to build back what was lost. First, they started with the altar. The passage mentions two key figures that we, we mentioned earlier, or Dylan and Dane mentioned earlier in the book of Ezra. Uh, Joshua, the son of Jezedak, and they mentioned his fellow priests, and Jerubbabel, the son of Shetael, and his kinsmen. One thing you can notice about the, the, the text is they didn't just build the altar any which way they pleased. No, the people sought to do things as God led, and so they desired to, to follow the commands of God that he had given to Moses, the man of God. They didn't just build the altar any which way. They built it as it was instructed by God through Moses, and they built it in the exact place it was originally laid. In this example, again, we see the people's and the leader's commitment to start with God first. Now, we can imagine there was plenty of other challenges, plenty of obvious obstacles that they had to contend with. Verse 3 shares just one of the challenges that the people of Israel faced. They, they, they feared the people of the land. Just even within that statement, it tells us a little bit more about their situation. 
For they were not the, 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 the superpower that they once were when they had subdued the land before the first temple was built. They were a fraction of the military strength that they used to be. Very likely, as they looked at all the other peoples of the land that, that, that had occupied it afterwards, they knew that if they were attacked by those people, they would not be able to do anything, even with the decree from Cyrus. And so they had to start with God first. They had to trust that the God who protected them and built them up back then when the first temple was built would be the same God that could protect them and lead them at that time for this next altar and temple. They had to trust that God's hand, his enduring hand, would be there even at that point. And so they built the altar, and then the leaders, they begin to, to offer burnt offerings to God, not just once, but morning and evening, a daily offering, and just ritual to, to, to repent of their sins, to, to show that they are trusting in God. Even before the temple is being built, they are doing this to trust in God, trusting that, that he is the one who brought them out of capture. He is the one who has brought them back to Jerusalem, and they're trusting in him. But, but also, they, 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 they trusted God to continue the regular witch rituals that Moses had commanded them. The people, they kept the Feast of Booths, it mentions here in the text. Now, it's not clear how long it had been since most of them had, had celebrated that festival. Having received such mercy and provisions from the Lord, they began to celebrate how he had rescued them or their ancestors from Egypt had led them through the wilderness back when each of them, they only had for their possession a tent that they could use for a dwelling. Back when they had no towns, they had no homes. Remember that God had sustained the people during those times. And then they were able to reflect on God had once again released them from capture, how he had rescued them. And we see here in verse 5 that they didn't just offer what was written, what was according to the law. The people did even more than that. They gave a free will offering, an offering that was more than they had to and was more than what the law required of them. But they gave it out of their, 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 their compassion and their thankfulness, their praise of what God had done for them. And so we see this wonderful scene of the people's hearts returning to God. But there was more for them to do. Which brings us to our second point, the temple of God's worship we found. Verse 6 shares that, that while the people continued to, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. They haven't even started the construction of, of this, this great structure of worship. And so they, they, they start to make preparations for it. 
They, they hire masons and carpenters. They, they, they go, and I'm not sure where they were able to find them, but they were able to find them and hire them and to, to, to make plans for that. They, they bring cedar trees from, from Sidon and Tyre, just like when the original temple was built. And they, they request those. They barter with the people. You see, given food, given oil, other things just to barter to go and pay for it. And then they get it to arrive from sea, and they have to go through the, the means of bringing it over to where they were. It's not as easy as it is right now to bring in all those supplies. And so with all those resources and the decree from Cyrus, the people prepare to rebuild the temple's foundation. After waiting for all the logistics to come together, in the second month of the second year after their return, the work began. And just as we saw in the beginning of this, this chapter, the people coming together as one man, again, they come together in agreement that this was the right thing to do. And so we see the leaders, the, 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 the priests, the Levites, Zerubbabel's kinsmen, they all come together to get this work started. They, you know, you have some of them who... who who manage the supplies to make sure they have enough stuff in order to, to get the work started. You see some of them supervising the workmen to make sure that they build the temple's foundation according to what it was written, according to the commandments of God. You see each committing to accomplish this feat as soon as possible, as quickly as they could. You can imagine there was a number of anticipation to get this done. Now, if you're just walking into the scene, as this is, if this is the first time you ever read about the, the second temple's construction, you may wonder, hey, what's the rush? Why do they need to get this done quickly? Why are they in a haste? What does this temple even symbolize? Well, it is true that the creator of heaven and earth did not need a house built by man to dwell in. God doesn't need it. What we see here is an act of his grace because the temple was provided as a means for God's presence to be with his people. In Exodus chapter 33, after the Lord, in his anger, righteous anger, because of the people of Israel's sin, after he stated to Moses that he would not go with them into the promised land, this is what Moses said to intercede with the people. Chapter 33, verse 15, it reads, And he said to him, said to the Lord, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. It was God's comfort, God's, God's presence that brought comfort to the people in times of struggle. And as the leaders of the return exiles, as they began to, to, to start this construction, it was that that they longed for, the reassurance that comes with knowing God is there with them, that God is for them. They longed for that. That was the desire. And we can see a little bit of that 
in the reaction of the people when the temple's foundation was completed. It's, it's a testament to the desire, the longing that they had for God to be with them. Which brings us to our, our last point. The worship of God's love renewed. The reaction that we see in this text, in this chapter, from the people when the, the foundation is finally laid, it may be surprising to you. It's a little bit to me as well. Uh, you know, at, at this point in the temple's rebuilding, you know, all they have is the foundation. That, that's all that's been completed at this point. And there was just so much work to be done. They were far from finished. And yet, we read that the people erupted with praise and emotion. You know, it started with the priests, those appointed by the law to, to, to come in their, their, their vestments, in their priestly robes with trumpets. And then the Levites, those appointed and trained to lead the congregation in worship, they came with, with voice, with, with symbols. And then, just like that, the celebration began. It, it, it erupted with congregational singing, you know, similar, similar to what we just did a little while ago. And then they, they, they sang a song. Again, we see them coming as one person in agreement, singing this congregational song, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. They are singing praises to God, recognizing what had just been done. They are amazed by it. They, they, they are thankful from it. And so you see this eruption of praise as they come together to just celebrate the Lord, their God. Uh, this, this, this psalm this, that they sing, you know, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. If you have read the Psalms often, you may recognize it. It is likely a part of Psalm 136. It's a song of praise and thanksgiving for what God had done, for what enduring love the creator has for his people. If you are having a rough day, perhaps a rough week, I definitely recommend read that psalm, Psalm 136, and remember and praise the Lord for what he has done. Praise the Lord for the enduring love that he has for you. I definitely recommend it. I've done that even this week. So, you know, as we look at this text, their troubles were not over yet. You know, we'll, we'll learn more about that next week about some other troubles that they will have. And the work, as I mentioned before, was far from done. They needed to do more stuff. There needed to be more supplies. There needed to be more supervision of workmen. There was a lot more to do. And yet the people could look at where they were less than a few years ago from this time, what they had been rescued for. I can imagine that, that there were times where they weren't even sure they would be able to get back to their homeland. Times when they didn't even think they would be able to worship the Lord as he had commanded. They wouldn't be able to gather together like this. There were probably times where they thought this was it. There would be no more Israel. Our nation is over. 
There were likely times where they just didn't know if they would ever experience God's mercy in their lives. But through the Lord's favor, moving the heart of the king, they were released and able to go back to their homeland. And through the Lord's protection, even in the land full of enemies, they were able to rebuild their structures of worship, not, not, not just the altar, but also the foundation of the temple. You can almost picture just the, 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 the raw emotion, the excitement of the people as they, they break out with these shouts of joy, shouts that are so loud even, all their neighbors from far off are hearing this eruption, probably wondering what in the world is going on. They are just so excited and so just passionate about what God had done and what was able to be accomplished. They erupt with it. But it wasn't all shouts of happiness. In verse 12 to 13, we read that the noise was a mix of happiness and sadness. Verse 12 reads, But many of the priests... Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted loud with joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. Possibly, uh, the ones who, of the people who, who shouted with joy, it's possible that they had never really even seen the first temple. They just pictured it in their head from the descriptions of family members as they, they looked back and described what things were like in their homeland, what the, the temple looked like, what were the regular rituals of worship. And so they, their response is one of amazement and sweet sentiment. But there's a different reaction for those who actually saw the first temple, who actually were there. They remembered what the first structure of worship looked like, and they expressed great sadness. Now, again, if we just look at this from a surface area level, you may think, hey, what's, time with, what's, what's wrong with you, old timers? You know, what's your deal? Why are you acting like that? Everybody is, is celebrating. Everybody is in a good mood, praising the Lord with great shouts of joy. And you're over here tearful. What's wrong with you? Come on, get with it. Join us. Get with the program. You know, it can be easy to, to, to look down, to, to, to judge the, the, the old members of the returned exiles. But, but I find it to be helpful just to reflect a little bit more on, on what's going on in this scene. And what could have brought about so much remorse from them? It's not clear from the text. It's not clearly stated what prompted their tears. Uh, you know, perhaps it was just the size of the foundation, you know, in comparison to the original. It could be that. 
It, it could, and more than likely, it, it, as they looked on it, they knew that the materials and, and the decorations for the foundation, it, it wasn't even close to the magnificence and majesty of the first temple that Solomon, King Solomon, built. Now, that, that's definitely more than likely. But I think it's helped also to think about these older members of the return exiles looking at the foundation, this new construction, and remembering the depths of what they lost due to sin. That it was their unfaithfulness that brought about the temple's destruction. Yes, it was the Babylonians who came in and physically destroyed the temple, the altar, but it was Israel's sin that actually resulted in God leaving his, taking his presence away from them. It was Israel's unfaithfulness that resulted in the temple and the altar being shattered, destroyed. And so as they looked upon this new foundation, the new altar, you can imagine that all came into their hearts as well, into their minds. They were the ones who were at fault that resulted in the loss of what they originally had. It was their rejection of God as king that led to their situation. And so the chapter ends with both joy and sadness. And, and yet, even those who were sad, even those who were, were joyful, they all still came together in agreement that God was merciful and God was good. And, and they, 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 they cried out either way, praising God for his mercy and faithfulness to them, even though they didn't deserve it. That God, in his love, would restore the structures of worship. That he would renew their ability to worship him as the one true God. And as Christians gather today, let's just like we are right now, think about it. We, too, are coming together in agreement of that same mercy, that same faithfulness. This is what we do. But know that even better, God has provided a new and lasting foundation, a new and lasting structure of true worship for his people. Where the true worship of God is built on the foundation of his word. By grace, God has provided a new foundation that can never be shattered. It can never be burnt down. He, he has provided a new temple for, for historically, even the second temple that we'll talk about later in coming weeks that was rebuilt, even that was broken down again. But what God has provided cannot be taken away, cannot be taken away by human hands. It cannot be taken away by season. By grace, we can shout for joy because God is good. His enduring love, as they said in this, this passage, his enduring love lasts forever. His steadfast love continues toward his people. For in Christ, we find 
the firm foundation that is built on God's word. In his letter to the Ephesian church, the Apostle Paul, he used this image of the foundation and the temple to describe what the Christian church is. After first reminding, in the second chapter, reminded the Christians of where they once were, rejectors of God's rule, he then starts to talk about where or what they had become as Christians, as followers of Christ. And so Paul wrote in the second chapter, and he, being Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, for through the saving work of Jesus Christ, through his sacrificial death on the cross, we too who were far off due to sin are brought near to God, are, are reconciled to God, and we are united together as one people bound by peace and love of the Lord. By, his, by grace, we who, who were just like the exiled Israelites, we were, we were far from God due to our unfaithfulness, we are brought back to him and into relationship with the one true God. We are brought into eternal life in Christ. But more than that, I love the, the illustration that Paul gives because if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a part of Christ's church. You, you are built on that firm foundation of God's word. You, you are built upon Christ, the cornerstone, and his teachings, his commands his love, and as the church, we are brought together as living stones to, to, to make a new temple in Christ. We become the dwelling place, the, the living dwelling place of God through the Spirit. So as you look on your life, if you have put your trust in your worship in this cornerstone, this Jesus Christ, know that you too can rejoice. You can shout with joy even in moments of sadness. You can be thankful that your life is built on something that is enduring, that can never be shattered, that can never be taken away. In Christ, you get to experience the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. And that will endure no matter the season, no matter the situation. No matter what you're going through this week, this year, this month, remember that. That God's enduring love is with you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, perhaps this is all new to you. 
This is, this is brand new. You haven't heard too much about Christianity. And so you're coming into this and still wondering what is going on. What are you even talking about? If that is true, let me just ask you this one question. What is your life built on? What is the foundation that your life is built on? One way to, to answer that is just to look on what you worship, what you spend all of your priority on in your day-to-day. -day. And then I encourage you to take heart the words of Christ that are found in the gospel account of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 49 reads, this is Christ speaking, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood rose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. Friend, I encourage you, do not build your life on that which is temporary, that which can be taken away by man or season. I invite you to hear and trust in this cornerstone, this Christ, for, for he is good and he is able to provide salvation into your life. He is the same one who sustained the people of Israel He's the same one who had steadfast love back then and has steadfast love right now. This is something that you can trust in, this foundation. This is something that you can build your life upon. If you would like to know more about this foundation, again, if this is brand new to you and you want to learn more about this cornerstone, I invite you to talk to even a Christian here today. And of course, if you are, are, are viewing with us online, I invite you to reach out to, to our pastors, Dane and Dylan, and, and the staff members at our church through the website, beaconcommunitychurch.org. A foundation built on Christ is a strong and enduring foundation indeed. Uh, this week, uh, my family uh, received some, some sad news as uh, my, my aunt, uh, Gloria, she passed away in her sleep. Uh, my Gloria was a stern aunt and godmother. In fact, I still remember times when she scolded me for, for something I did. I mean, if you really want to know what I did, I can tell you later, not now. But, but yeah, she, she, she scolded me often. Uh, and she was a diligent worker. She, she served in the medical field for years. One of the things uh, about my Aunt Gloria is that 
when my parents first moved from Jamaica to the United States, she was one of my, our family members who sponsored them. And so she serves as a, an important part of that story of my family's life. Now, over the years, uh, my Aunt Gloria and I, we, we, we became distant. It's not because we had an argument or anything like that. No, it's just the, the busyness of life. As I came into adulthood, you know, we would only really talk to each other when, uh, when we had infrequent large family gatherings. Um, we don't do that often in, in my family. But when that happened, we would have you know, those rare conversations with each other. My dad and I, we, we talked about that a little bit this week as uh, we're mourning our loss. Uh, but in that same phone call, uh, my dad, he reminded me that Aunt Gloria served as a living stone of faith in our lives. You know, even in those stern moments where she would yell at me for something, it would still have glimpses of faith. You know, in, in, in her diligent work, which, which was an example to me and, and my brothers and sisters, she would show just a, a, a trust in being a good steward of what God provides. In, in her compassion towards her family members, towards me, she would show what it means to, to appreciate and care for the people that God has placed in her life, she was an example of, of truly living out a walk of faith. And so, you know, my dad said we can celebrate that, that, that we had someone in our life like my Aunt Gloria, who, whose going, comings and goings, who, whose worship, or whose even work, it was all built on the foundation of that cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And it is the same foundation, praise God, that my life is built on today. And so, even as we mourn, we can give thanks, for that is a foundation that endures. That is a foundation that one can build one's life upon. And that is the foundation that's provided through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day, this day that you have made, for you have made it to draw our eyes to you and your everlasting love that you in your grace would make a way for those enslaved, captured by sin, to be released, to be free, and to come into relationship with you. For you are our true worship. And so we thank you for providing that through Jesus Christ. We do just pray, even as we continue in congregational singing, that we would praise with great shouts of joy, knowing that you are good and that your steadfast love truly does last forever. And so we thank you 
for this day. We lift up the rest of this service to you. In Jesus' name, amen.